It's good to see you this morning. Welcome. So yeah, Brian Colkman's going to be here with us this Wednesday night at Walk Through the Bible and just uh, sharing. And for those of you who don't know Brian, we sent him out about five years ago now to plant a church in, in Kamloops, and it's exciting to see what God's doing there. And uh, so he's going to be here and sharing with us on Wednesday night. And so I really encourage you to come out. I know if, if you know Brian, uh, he would really appreciate seeing your face and stuff, and it's good. You know, we've been, our church has just been behind that ministry this whole time. It's really cool to see what the Lord's doing there. And so, uh, yeah, Wednesday night at 7, okay? So sweet. And then uh, this morning, we got Kids Place happening. It's in our 930 service. So just if you're wondering for parents or for those that are watching online, 930 service is when we've got our Kids Place happening. We won't have anything yet in the 11 o'clock service, but uh, yeah. And then uh, also one more thing, just a prayer tonight. We're here at seven, okay? So if you're able to join us for prayer, we'd love to have you with us. So if you got your Bibles, let's go to the book of Judges, man. We're going to dive in here to a new... New book this morning. It's always fun jumping into a new one and getting our bearings. And uh, so let's pray as we come to God's word. Lord, we just thank you for the chance to be together this morning. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, God, for your spirit that is here with us. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would just open our eyes to see the wonderful things that are in the word, that we would see Jesus in this text, Lord that we'd see how you want to be at work in our own hearts and in our own lives and in this world. And so, Lord, we commit this time to you. We ask uh, your blessing upon it, Lord. And just think of uh, Jessica, who Blake, what Blake was mentioning, she lost her dad last night. And, Lord, we just pray for your comfort and your peace to be upon her, Lord, and upon all her family, that you just pour out your grace upon them, Lord, that they would uh, experience your comfort as they mourn today, Lord. Be with them. And, we thank you now, Lord, as we dive into your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Sweet, yeah, so we're in Judges, seventh book of the Old Testament here, and it picks up the story right where we've left off. You know, we spent the better part of six months as all this COVID pandemic stuff started in the book of Joshua, and then as we were able to come back together, and we've just wrapped up the book of Joshua in September, and uh, so before we, I guess before we move forward into Judges, we kind of have to just readjust and get our bearings again from the book of Joshua, because this, this is just the continuation of the story of God's people from Joshua. And so let me remind you of a couple things, because the book of Judges starts right with the death of Joshua. Uh, Joshua was the chosen successor of Moses. He was one of two men from his entire generation that had been led out of slavery in Egypt who had remained faithful uh, in trusting God to fulfill his promises to bring Israel into the promised land. So Joshua led the people of Israel into the land of Canaan. And Josh, the book of Joshua documents how God brought them from the wilderness into the promised land and how under his leadership they defeated the inhabitants of the land and the tribes of Israel were able to settle into what God had promised them. And in Joshua, we saw this, that, that God always keeps his promises. And it means this, that, that we as his people can just obediently follow him as he instructs us and commands us in direction in our lives. And so we see that in, that in Joshua, that, that God just 
kept his word to his people. And as he brought them into the land, if we were to go all the way back to Joshua chapter one, he gave them some specific instructions. The first thing, or he told them some specific things. The first thing was this. He said to them that he would give them the land and that every place where the sole of their foot would tread would be theirs. Do you remember that? All the way back from the start of Joshua. That's what he told them. Everywhere where your soul treads, I will give you that land. And then he told them this, that their success in the land and their ability to live on in the land would depend upon uh, them humbly following him and their devotion to his word. That, that as they committed to be people who lived by the word of God, he would bless them and he would make them successful and he would make them prosperous in the land. He said, he said to Joshua, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it and you'll be prosperous. Then you will be prosperous and successful. And so the Lord told them as he led them into the land that victory and that rest would not be by their own achievement, but that it would come through depending upon him, leaning upon him, that rest would come as they depended on the Lord. And the Lord told them, on the other hand, that should they be disobedient to his word, they, then, then in that case, they should not expect success. And so this was really important as they went into the land, that the people understood this, that they had to live as the covenant people of God. And as they lived as God's people, God would lead them to victory and success. And so when you come to the end of the book of Joshua, what we see is this, is that Joshua leads the children of Israel into freshly committing themselves to live as God's covenant people, to live as those who would obey uh, his word. And Joshua instructed them, teach these things to your children so that in the generations to come, you'll serve the Lord. Now, one of the things that Joshua stressed over and over again was this, that that uh, God's requirement was that the children of Israel not enter into covenants with the people that were living in the land, the Canaanites, those seven nations that we saw throughout the book of Joshua. And uh, they were instructed not to let their sons intermarry with their daughters or let their daughters intermarry with their sons. They were to drive out, rather, the inhabitants of the land and to take that land as their own home. And sometimes, you know, as we read that, we go, wow, you know, I mean, maybe just to remind us of Joshua, we go, wow, that seems kind of unfair on the part of the Lord or unjust to just drive out these inhabitants. But they weren't driving them out to be vengeful or for economic reasons or for whatever to steal what they have. It was spiritual. The Lord, the Lord was concerned that his people serve him and live for him alone and not follow the gods of the nations around him. And so those inhabitants had to be removed from the land so that Israel was not religiously and spiritually influenced by them because they were to hold fast to the Lord. Time and time again at the end of Joshua, Joshua instructed them and said, you have to cleave to the Lord. You've got to tighten your grip on the Lord, lay hold of him with a mighty grip and serve him with strength and with courage. And so with Israel settled in the land, uh, we turn to the book of Judges uh, with all of Joshua in mind and in the background. And what we're going to see is this same truth, this application for our lives that um, if we're going to enjoy 
all that Jesus has for us, all that the kingdom of God has in store for us, then it's going to require this of us. We're going to have to walk with Jesus. We're going to have to be those who are faithful to his word and walking with him. See, our relationship with Jesus is one of faith. We enter into the kingdom of God by faith. There's nothing we've done to save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Jesus is our savior. We have been saved by his grace through faith. But when it comes to enjoying Jesus and enjoying life in the kingdom, this is where our obedience and our participation with the work of Jesus comes into play. As his disciples, we can't, you know, live disobedient lives to the word of God and then expect to be, you know, enjoying ourselves and be like, yeah, Jesus is so awesome. The kingdom of God is is so awesome. And, And think that, you know, we'll have joy with, with living disobediently. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. Maybe would just ask us this, even as we get started in the book of Joshua, what's going on in your life? Where's your joy at the book of Judges? Where's your joy at of your heart? Is there disappointment in your life? Is there a lack of joy in the Lord? And maybe I would ask you, is it possible that there is an area of disobedience at the root of what's going on in your own heart, in your own life? Because the Bible tells us that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of life and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so as we dive in here, I just want to encourage you to take heart as we walk through the book of Judges. Um, We're going to see how obedience is tied to God's blessing and how disobedience is tied to him bringing correction and discipline. And we're going to see how the Lord is always faithful, how he's always seeking the hearts of his people, always looking to restore, restore, always working to set us free, always looking to be forgiving to those who would turn to him in repentance. And, and the book of Judges is pretty crazy. I mean, we're going to see some of, the, some of the more exciting stories of the Bible in the book of Judges and some of the more disturbing stories of the Bible in the book of Judges. And we're going to see that no thing, no situation is beyond the Lord's ability to work as we obediently turn to him. So let's, let's take a peek here. We're going to move uh, through this first chapter this morning. It says this in verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. So right here we read this, that they said, Lord, where do we start? We know that the big battles have been won here. There's like little fires to be put out, little skirmishes to happen amongst the various tribes. And they said, Lord, where do we begin now that Joshua's gone? And Joshua, uh, uh, sorry, the Lord said to the people of Israel, as they asked, what should we do first? He said, start with Judah. Let Judah go first. It's kind of cool just to pause and think about that because do we know what Judah means? What does Judah mean? It means praise. The Lord says, start with praise. Praise takes priority in spiritual warfare. I was thinking about that. That's why we start church with singing, with praise. Praise takes priority. Praise changes the atmosphere. It was David's harp that soothed the fleshly man Saul. 
Boy, and like praise, the praise of God soothes your flesh. It brings things into order. It, it focuses, us, focuses us in on the spiritual. And so the Lord says, start with Judah. Praise is the path to victory. When you don't know what to do, I would just say this. When you don't know what to do, Judah. <laughs> when you don't know what to do, praise the Lord. Jesus can do anything. We can call on his name. Lord, I call on your name. I lift my hands. I bend the knee. I bow my heart. Jesus, I worship you. I'm asking you to work in this situation. And the enemy is driven back by praise. So it says in verse 3, And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. So interesting, the Lord doesn't like say, yeah, grab Simeon, your brother, and bring him with you. Uh, Simeon and, and Judah, like if we were to go back in history with Jacob, they were blood brothers. And Simeon's tribal inheritance in the book of Joshua, we see, actually lay inside of Judah's inheritance. So they came to an agreement. You help me. And we'll help you, and we'll work at this together. But kind of the question right away as you read this, as we get right started in the book of Joshua, it's like, well, was that what God said to do? Is that what he said to do? Was that the right thing? And I mean, you could argue whether it was or not. I, I, I maybe don't have an answer, but I do think this. Clearly, Judah, in and of itself, that tribe of Judah felt inadequate. They said, well, I don't think I can do this. So they recruited some help. And you know, often God calls us, and the first feeling we often sense is this, well, God, I'm not fit for that. God, I'm not adequate for that. We sense our own inadequacy, and we say, I can't do that, Lord. I, I feel totally unequipped for what you're asking me to do. And I think when those times come, we have to remember that old saying that you plus God is a majority, that where God guides, God provides. You don't need anyone else to help you do what God has called you to do. You and God is a majority. You just respond in obedience, and He'll empower you. But that's not what Judah does right off the hop here. So let's read on in verse 4. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. They defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek, they found Adonai Bezek, that's the Lord of Bezek, the king. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek, and they fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him, and they caught him, and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Not cool. Verse 7, and Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes used to pick, pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. So Judah went, as they were told by God, and God gave the Canaanites into their hands, and he captures their king. And it's a funny story here. I, I, I'd like to actually spend more time on this, the thumbs and the toes being cut off, but I'm going to move quickly today because I want to cover ground. But it's interesting. We, we read that, and you go, wow, that's like cruel. This guy's not going to be able to work with his hands anymore. He's not going to ever be able to run ever again without his big toes. And 
In our 21st century mind, for sure, we go, what the heck is going on as we read this, don't we? But it's interesting that, that Adonai Bezek himself, this king, did not take exception whatsoever to what was done to him. Rather, he said this, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table as I have done, so God has repaid me. Amazing. This is a biblical principle. This man said, I have sown and I have reaped the consequences of what I have sown. The Bible tells us that that's how the Lord operates. The Bible tells us that that we're not to be deceived, that God is not mocked, that whatever a man sows, he will reap. It's It's a law of God and this man understood it. It's important that we understand this. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. What a man sows, he shall reap. And this man reaped the sword. Let's move on here. It says this in verse 8. The men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negeb, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Shishai and the Hymen and Talmai. Verse 11. For there they went against the inhabitants of Debir, and the name of Debir formerly was Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, to him I will give Axal, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksah, his wife, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negeb, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper and the lower springs. Now this is a cool picture, I think, of this father and his daughter, because what we see is this. Though the Lord is giving Judah uh, some victories, uh, we're going to see this, that they also are going to step into some serious failures here, but Aksa and Caleb kind of serve as a bit of an ideal picture here for us as we read this story. This is a father who who wanted to uh, win this area, and he gave his daughter as the wife to Othniel, who's going to be a judge. He's going to pop up later in the book of Judges. Um, Gave to Othniel Aksa to be his wife, and she asked her father for a field, and she asked him for the springs of water. Now, in, in the Bible, we know this, that water is often a picture of the Holy Spirit. Caleb was going to give her a field, and she asked for a second blessing Besides the land, she said, Father, give me springs of water. It's amazing. Doesn't Jesus talk about this in the New Testament? He says that anyone who asks for the Holy Spirit, the Spirit will be given and springs of living water will flow from his belly. It's a great picture. Asking the Father for a second blessing. Father, not just the field. I ask you for springs of water. Do what Aksa did. You know, Jesus said this, if, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? 
And so the upper and lower springs, abundance of waters were given to Aksa. And, and the Holy Spirit will be given to those who ask the Father. All you have to do is ask, Father, I need your Spirit. Fill me with the Spirit. Now verse 16. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. So just as we're opening up the book of Judges here and we get started, we see that though, though Judah felt inadequate, uh, to win victories, God was blessing them as they fought against the enemy with their brother Simeon. But check out verse 19. It says this, And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. So it's kind of strange here. This is just begin, we're going to just begin to watch this whole story turn this morning is really an introduction to the book of Judges. It sets the stage for us to see what's going on with the children of Israel. It's strange to hear that after all of these victories in the mountains, they come to the valley and they begin to, they, they can't drive out the inhabitants of the valley. Why? Why is that? Why victory in the mountains and failure in the valley? Well, I would say this, Judah did not trust in God's strength. They were measuring their strength against their enemy's strength. They looked at their enemies and they said, the enemy has chariots of iron. How could we possibly drive out this enemy? And they fixed their eyes on the chariots rather than on the Lord. You know, it's just true. And it's important that we pause and consider this, that there is no foe that can't be overcome when we set our eyes on Jesus. When we fix our eyes on the Lord. But if we put our eyes on the obstacle, if we focus on the problem, you won't drive it out. Like I, I'm reminded of Peter walking on the water. What happened? When he took his eyes off of Jesus and he began to look at the wind and the waves, he began to sink. You have to fix your eyes on the Lord. And Judah did not trust God. And we have to remember this, that it's, that it's not our lack of strength that stops God from working victories in our lives. It's not our lack of strength. It's our lack of faith in His strength. It's always the Lord who wins the victory. We just have to trust Him. And often we rely on ourselves, our own selves, and then when the Lord, you know, just asks us to obey, we take our eyes off Him and we experience defeat. But when we obey and we fix our eyes on Jesus, he shows himself strong on our behalf. Now let's read on here. We're going to get an ideal picture again of Caleb. Check it out. It says, and Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. Now quite the contrast here. A whole tribe can't take on some chariots of iron, but Caleb takes on the sons of Anak who were giants, three of them. Now, was Caleb's 
strength in his, his own faith? Or sorry, did his was Caleb's faith in his own strength? No. Caleb's was a man whose eyes were on the Lord. This is Caleb who stood before the congregation of the Lord when a generation before they were waffling and he said, no, let us go up at once and occupy it. God has given us this land. This is Caleb who stood before this city of Hebron and said, give me this hill country because the Lord promised it to me. And he was successful in driving out these Canaanites. He's a picture of the ideal. His daughter, Aksa, is a picture of the ideal. But unfortunately, like a virus spreading, that it's attacks the heart, this kind of, I don't know, contagion of half-heartedness was beginning to spread, not just from Judah, but throughout all the people of Israel. Let's check it out. Verse 21. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Uh, they were there until David took control of the city and complete, completely drove them out. And our David, King Jesus, wants to drive out the enemy completely from our lives. But we have to live surrendered to him. Check out verse 22. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel. The Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man go and all, of his, and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city that is called and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Interesting. The Lord says, don't make deals with the Canaanites. What do they do here? The house of Joseph, that's Manasseh and Ephraim, make a covenant with a Canaanite man. And they spare his life. And this man has the opportunity to join the people of God. But what does he do? He, he leaves. He goes to the land of the Hittites. He builds another city in, in the pattern after the one that he's, has just been destroyed. And he calls it after the same name. And it's, it's just an interesting picture that people do the same thing today. They receive a blessing from the Lord. We could receive forgiveness from the Lord, experience his mercy and grace, but then we can go back to old things, old habits, rebuild old areas in our lives. And this man just serves as a picture to us that if God has saved you, if he's brought you into his kingdom, don't go back to old areas of life. Don't go back and try to remanufacture things in the past. Don't do it. And this man, he just disappears from the pages of history. We don't even know what his name is. All we know is this, is he missed out on being a part of the people of God. Then check out verse 27. It says, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshan, or its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land, and when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. 
The reason implied here is that it just made more economic financial sense and required less work to just keep these folks around. Uh, force them into labor rather than drive them out. And, and this tribe chooses convenience over obedience. Well, it's just, let's pick convenience rather than obedience. It's not that they couldn't drive them out. It's that they wouldn't drive them out. Especially because there was an opportunity to make some money here. There was financial gain. Check out verse 29. We're just going to keep reading about these tribes. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulon did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol. So the Canaanites lived among them but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab or of Aksib or of Helba or of Aphek or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and the inhabitants and, and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed, back, pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down into the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Herez, in Ajalon, and in Shalbim, and the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim from Selah and upward. Man, thanks for putting up with me reading all that stuff. <laughs> it's crazy as you read this because it seems like this chapter starts off so well. It just starts off so good. Israel's in the land. They're settled into their inheritance in the Lord, their allotments. They've had some victories. They've been led forth by praise. But, and it's a big but, <laughs> in terms of their individual battles, the regional mop-up operations, they had not trusted the Lord. They had not obeyed Him. And now they quickly found themselves living side by side with these idol-worshiping Canaanites. And it was like living in a minefield, like when you think about it. You know, I've heard one, one African missionary once say this, that, that little leopards become big leopards. <laughs> you know, cute and cuddly when they're small, those little cats. But then they get big and they can kill people. And the children of God here, like, they've been... They've chose to live amongst a minefield. And there's a warning for us in this because our lives can look like this. That when we fail to obey that which God has commanded us to do, it always, it always results in this compromise where we get caught in the way that we're living. And what God commands us to do is is to have faith and be obedient and just to do what he says to do. And when we fail to obey what God commands, the result is this. We will, we will, 
Well, we are in a place of failing to believe what he's promised us. And you read this, and, and I just, you know, quickly going through this chapter here, start to wonder what God thought about all of this. As God has done all this miraculous work to bring his people into this land, leading them out of Egypt, preserving them in the wilderness, leading them across the Jordan, defeating all these inhabitants in the land. And God begins to look down and sees this, and you have to wonder, what did he think about it all? And this is really important to the book of Judges. And this is why I want to just, just dip our toe into chapter 2 this morning because it gives us a picture of how God thought. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. Angel in Hebrew can be translated messenger. And this is a very important picture in the book of Judges. This is the messenger of the Lord. This is not just an angel of the Lord. This is the angel of the Lord. This is Jesus Christ. This is the word made flesh in the Old Testament. This is in, you know, in the Old Testament, there are a number of times, it's going to happen elsewhere in the book of Judges, where Jesus actually physically manifested amongst the people of God. Before he ever came as Jesus of Nazareth. And so the angel of the Lord, as it says here, went up from Gilgal to Bochem. And the root is really important. What we're reading here is really important. He went up from Gilgal to Bochem. Now back in the book of Joshua, we spent quite a bit of time discussing this place called Gilgal. And if you weren't with us in the book of Joshua, I apologize to you this morning. You might want to go back and take a peek at some of our teachings from Joshua. But this place, Gilgal, was hugely significant. Over the centuries, Israel would often return to Gilgal and it would be a place where they would recommit themselves to live as the covenant people of God. Gilgal, if you recall, was the place where Israel set up its base camp as the armies of Israel went out and first crossed the Jordan and then went out from that base camp to deal with the inhabitants of uh, the land of Canaan. Gilgal was the base camp. And Gilgal is significant because in the scripture, it pictures for us the resurrected life. It's a picture of someone, someone who lives at Gilgal is someone who builds their life on the victory of Jesus over, the death in the, over death in the grave. It's a picture of the resurrected life. Gilgal, I would say, is resurrection ground, and it pictures the people of God living the resurrected life. And it was at Gilgal that the Lord said this to the children of Israel. He said, I've rolled away. I've rolled away. That's what Gilgal means, the rolling away. I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt. When Jesus rose from the dead, conquered sin, conquered death, conquered the grave, we know this, the stone was rolled away. Gilgal means the rolling away. This angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord came from Gilgal, resurrection ground, and he came to the place called Bohem, which means weeping. 
the weeping and the root is important. It's a reminder to the children of Israel, these tribes, that they had been saved by grace, that it was God who had led them out of slavery in Egypt. And we too, we've been saved by grace. What did we do for our salvation? You know, nothing. Nothing. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. No one took Jesus' life. Jesus gave his life in our place. Took on himself the wrath of God, buried in a tomb, risen from the dead, and not just the stone was rolled away when Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus rolled back the reproach of sin. Jesus rolled away the shame of our past. Jesus rolled away the guilt of our transgression. Jesus robbed the grave of its power and he defeated sin. And in his grace, Jesus has saved us. Now let's read this again, verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bohem and said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? That, that question, what is this you have done, it makes me think of Adam and Eve in the garden. You know, where are you? Where did you go? I placed you here. I did this for you. What is this you have done? Jesus says to them, I, I said that I would drive out your enemies just as I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I said I would give you victory in this land, but you haven't obeyed. You've disobeyed. You've let your enemies live. You failed to destroy their altars. I mean, the, the children of Israel were supposed to cleanse, cleanse the land of its idols so that they were able to live and be faithful to the Lord, be faithful to the covenant that they had with the Lord. And for us, you know, I, I just think this, that, that, that Jesus wants lordship over every area of our life, church, over every area, not just some of them. And it wasn't that Israel could not hear. It was that they would not. They would not. Now let's read on. Verse 3. The angel speaks. So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. Bohem, they wept. And they called on the name of the Lord, and they, sorry, and they, verse 5, and they called the name of that place, Bohem, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. You know, as we just turn into the book of Judges and just get started here, what we see is this, is that Israel had failed to be obedient to the Lord shortly after he settled them in the land, and, and the results are nothing but catastrophic. Jesus said the Canaanites and their gods, 
will become to you thorns in your sides and a snare for you. And church, this shows us what idolatry does. This shows us what a lack of obedience does. This shows us what compromise does. You know, idolatry, the worship of other gods, the, the putting other things in place of Jesus is always a battle in our lives. And idolatry is simply this. It's, it's, it's taking anything and putting it in place of the Lord. Anything that even might be good in the midst of God's creation. Like marriage. I actually think in church, marriage can become a real idol amongst the people of God because we place such a high value on it. Or our children, or family, or idols could be business, or work, or in our culture, we live amongst a culture where they idolize nature, trees, the ocean, the stars, the environment. It's idolatry. And... When we build for ourselves, we fashion an idol, what we're doing is this. We're saying to that thing, you're the source of my comfort. You're the source of my security. My identity and my sense of value and power comes from you. This is why, and I'm going to pick on one this morning, but I think we can clearly see it in our culture. This is why the green movement is such an act of idolatry and children of God, people of God have to be cautious. Because they say, the world is saying to the environment, my security comes from you. Ah, it's coming to an end. The world is going to end. And now security is shaken and broken. It's a sign that they're worshiping creation rather than the creator. Jesus said this to the children of Israel. Your idols will be a thorn. They will make you miserable. They will rob you of joy. The things that you worship in place of me will actually rob you of joy in the land. You look around the world, and I tell you, the things that people worship rob them of joy. Only Jesus brings joy. Only worshiping Jesus brings fulfillment in life. Jesus said this to them, their idols will be a snare to you. It's a trap. You will be enslaved, you will be caught in that trap, and you will be in bondage because of their gods. Church, only Jesus is worthy of our worship. Only Jesus is worthy to receive all the glory. Only Jesus died and only Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus alone is worthy of our obedience. And Jesus will not tolerate or bless evil. He's loving. He is faithful. But Jesus will not tolerate competition. He will not tolerate the thought of losing you. Jesus has committed himself to you. In fact, he has purchased you with his blood. The word of God declares that we're to have no other gods before him. And we live in this tension as we live for the kingdom of God and we live in this world seeking to live for Jesus but always being wooed by this world and the idols of this world and church, we always have to come back to the cross. On the cross, our sin was placed on Jesus. 
And the word of God tells us that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And God poured out his wrath on his son Jesus. The thorns were placed on his head, on his brow. The thorns that pierced our lives, those idols, the snares that had entrapped us, Jesus took it all. And sin was punished and the justice of God was satisfied. And now the Father is able to forgive us of our idolatry because of Jesus. In Jesus' life, eternal life, abundant life, life to the full. And when we come to him, we find forgiveness, we find hope, we find life, we find freedom from guilt, freedom from shin, uh, from sin, freedom from shame, freedom from fear, help to be, to be obedient. We come to Jesus and we find all of these things. And, and just as we get started in the book of Judges, I want to just leave you with this challenge this morning. Jesus wants your heart. Jesus wants your obedience, and where he asks us to meet him to set everything right is at his cross. He wants to roll away the reproach of sin and disobedience. And like the children of Israel, all of us have these areas where we allow disobedience to creep in. We allow compromise to creep in, where we get sucked into worshiping the idols of those around us. But they rob us of joy. Don't you want to enjoy all that Jesus has for you? Then we come to the cross and we set it right. We set it right. And so this morning, I just want to invite us to do this. To stand, would you stand with me actually? And, and let's just pray. Let's just say, Lord... We ask you this morning to root out the idols of our lives, the very things that have gotten in the way of us being obedient to you. And I'm going to, what time have we got here? I can't see that clock. Okay, I'm not going to invite the worship team to come. <laughs> uh, I'm going to just lead us in prayer this morning. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we want to enjoy all that you have for us. We want to enjoy you, Jesus, and your kingdom. Lord Jesus, we thank you for saving us. We thank you, Jesus, that like you led the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt, you have led us out of bondage to sin. You've given us life and life to the full. And Lord, we acknowledge that we are living in this tension like the children of Israel with the culture around us, with the idols around us, and we are easily wooed away, Lord. God, we pray that you would smash our idols. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to destroy those altars. We pray, God, that as you search our hearts by your spirit this morning, that you'd reveal to us the areas of compromise and disobedience, and that you would help us to turn and serve you in those areas. Lord, we come to the cross. We ask Jesus that you'd wash us again in your blood. Cleanse us of our sin. Lord, we ask this morning 
for springs of living water in our lives. That we would be men and women filled with the Holy Spirit, overflowing with your presence, empowered by you to live for you. Lord, smash our idols. Today we turn our hearts towards you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, hey, God bless you this